Hopefully the theological novocaine from last week hasn't worn off. Uh, we, uh, we are in for a very challenging and tender word uh, this morning. The Novocaine illustration, it certainly wasn't a perfect illustration. It broke down in, in various ways. But last week was intended to, to help you receive this week with confidence and with joy. Today is a bit tough. There, there's no way around that. I can't really change that too much. Um, but hopefully, you at least begin to see the beauty of election. If you missed last week, which uh, some of you have, uh, go to our website, listen to the message. It, it, does, it is the first part of this. This is just part two, and so this is a continuation of last week, so it really would help you to hear last week. But here's a quick review. Do you know and understand more or less than God? Uh, obviously, God's knowledge and understanding far exceeds ours. Will you believe whatever God tells you in His Word? Uh, whenever our view conflicts with God's view, it is our view that needs to adjust, that needs to change. Is God really sovereign over absolutely everything? Yes. The Scripture is clear that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Can God do anything that he pleases? Yes, scripture is clear that God does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. Lastly, are all people really sinners? And do they really deserve God's just and eternal judgment? And I think scripture is clear that apart from Jesus now, Yes, all humanity is entirely corrupted by sin and deserving of God's justice. All of that from last week will help you with today. Two weeks ago, I mentioned that Malachi used what's called a chiasm. I'm sure many of you don't study that. Uh, I, I don't really study that. But it appears that Malachi is structured around a, um, uh, six arguments, A, B, C, C, B, A, which means argument one parallels argument six, argument two parallels argument five, and argument three parallels argument four. And so we're going to see that. We're, we're, we're going to see the themes of verses two through five repeat themselves at the end of our, our series uh, when we get into argument six. The other structural argument that I think is, or element rather, that I think is helpful that I mentioned was the pattern of God stating a certain issue, people questioning that issue, and then God speaking to that issue and, and resolving it. And that's happening in verses 2 through 5. In verse 2, God states his covenant love for his chosen people, Israel. Also in verse 2, Israel questions God's love for them. And then in verses 2 through 5, God vindicates his love, his covenant love for his chosen people, Israel. So we're going to take that as kind of our outline. Number one, God loves his chosen people. Number two, God's people often question his love for them. And number three, God vindicates his love for his people through the doctrine of election. Number one, God loves his chosen people. This is what the point at the end of the sermon was last week, but this is just a recap. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, I think recaps it pretty well. Moses told Israel this, 
It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So nothing about Israel compelled God to set his love on them and choose them. God chose Israel because he wanted to showcase his love. He wanted to showcase his trustworthiness by keeping his oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to their offspring, which is what he said in his covenant. God could have chosen any nation on earth, but he chose to love the least. He chose to love tiny Israel. Malachi begins the word of the Lord to Israel. I have loved you, Israel. The same applies to everyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are united to Christ by faith, God has chosen to love you through his son. Sadly, post-exilic Israel, their, their posture toward God was one of doubt, one of accusation. How have you loved us? How, God, have you loved us? Which brings us to our second point, number two. God's people often question his love for them. Israel was more focused on their unfavorable circumstances beneath the reign of the Persian Empire than they were on the integrity and promises of God. Although they were, they were back home now with a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, even though that was true, they didn't like how insignificant they were. They, they, they had become a, a small and pathetic little region, and, and others seemed to be so great. They were disappointed with God. What are you doing? What are you doing, God? And you know, we do the same thing, don't we? Life can be very painful, and sometimes in the pain, we question, does God really love us? Does he really love us? We look at our circumstances, we, we look at everything that's gone wrong, and we forget that God is at work. We, we forget his promises that he is bound to keep by his own holy and trustworthy character. But in a blink of an eye, in, in just a little bit of a moment, we will see Christ face to face, and we will never again forget the extent of the love of God for us. I have loved you is as much for you, dear believers, dear Christian, dear church, as it was for Israel. Because you are in Christ. Don't forget, receive the doctrine of election as God's love letter to you, affirming that he really does love you, and he will love you forever, forever. Now, Israel questioned that forever love. And, um, and God needed to make a defense. Now, God's defense is a bit shocking. And that's what we have to look at. Number three, God vindicates his love. He makes a defense for his love for his people through the doctrine of election. Here's how God began to defend his love for Israel. And it's not what, what we would expect. It's probably not where we would have started, but this is where God starts. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? What on earth does that mean? 
Why would God start with Esau when he's trying to defend his love for Israel, for Jacob? Now, I didn't get this at first. Um, Here's what I think is happening, though. God wanted to prove his love to Israel by taking them back in history to Esau and Jacob to make a point through Esau and Jacob. So let's go back. We got to go back. First, let's Here's kind of an outline of where we're going with this third point. First, let's review the story of Esau and Jacob. Uh, Second, let's see how God chose to love Jacob. Uh, Third, let's see how God chose to hate Esau. And fourth, let's see how God's judgment upon Edom affirmed God's love for Israel. Okay, first, the story of Esau and Jacob. God made a covenant with Abraham And his offspring. Abraham's wife Sarah was barren. No offspring. That's a problem. Sarah and Abraham tried to fix that themselves with some weird plan. And so Abraham unlawfully took Hagar as his second wife and had a son Ishmael with her. Thirteen years after Ishmael was born, Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. They were old. No offspring. Then God told Abraham, I will give you a son by Sarah. Kings of peoples shall come from her, from barren Sarah, not from fertile Hagar. Abraham pleaded with God. I think Abraham had a different thing in mind here. He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now listen to God's answer. No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac." whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God chose to establish his loving covenant with Abraham's Isaac, not Abraham's Ishmael. Later on, God told Isaac, in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. But then, uh uh-oh, Isaac's wife Rebekah was barren. But God worked out his plan. God had a plan. God was taking this somewhere. He gave Isaac and Rebekah twins. Listen carefully to what the Lord said to pregnant Rebekah before the twins were born. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The older shall serve the younger. Before these two little boys were born, God made a choice. God made a choice. Both would become great nations. Esau would become the great nation of Edom. Jacob would become the great nation of Israel. That's very important. Don't forget that. You'll need that. And in ancient culture, the firstborn son was the son of position and the son of privilege and the son of blessing, and the son of greatest inheritance. Esau was the firstborn son. 
Jacob was the younger son, but God had made a choice. The older shall serve the younger. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Eventually, God told Jacob in a dream, in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God reiterated his covenant with Jacob in Genesis 35. God established his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Others, like Ishmael, like Esau, were excluded from God's loving covenant. It was God's decision to exclude them from the covenant. That's the story of Esau and Jacob. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Obvious answer. Yes, of course. Of course. You see, both were Abraham's grandsons. Both were Isaac's sons. Esau was the oldest And from a human perspective, when we look at that and look at cultural trends, the covenant God made with Abraham and Isaac should have been made with Esau. Yet God chose the unlikely brother, the younger brother, the brother from which the great nation of Israel would come from. Second, let's see how God chose to love Jacob. What did God say in Malachi 1, 2, 2 and 3? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Friends, that's election. That right there is election. Neither Esau nor Jacob deserved God's love. You've got to get last week in human depravity in your mind. They didn't deserve anything from God. He owed them nothing, but God chose to love Jacob anyway. He chose to love one. God's love for Jacob was beautifully special. It was unique, exclusive, particular, specific, precise, and electing. His love was covenant love. What does love mean in verses 2 and 3? Well, I can tell you this. It's not the love of a pop song. It's not Nicholas Sparks' story love. That's not what this is. God's love for Jacob is not this warm and fuzzy, like, emotional feeling careful with this one, but think it through. It's not even unconditional love. God's love comes exclusively through the condition of Jesus Christ, his son. There is a condition. God's love is not like our love. We we, we can't bring what we think love is and attach it to God. His love is divine. His love is above us. His, his, His love is so different. God His love comes exclusively through the covenant that he makes. God's love is not like our love. God's love is covenant love given through relationship and blessings. God pursued Jacob and entered into loving relationship with him and his offspring. Relationship that was bound by an oath. Jacob wasn't lovable. Jacob was terrible, just like Esau was. 
Read the story. Know their lives. You won't find the justification of election inside of Jacob or inside of anyone. It can only be found inside of God. God elected to love Jacob to showcase the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his mercy, the beauty of his compassion and faithfulness, not to show that Jacob was more lovable than Esau. That wasn't his point. Don't despise election. It's the foundation for God's love for his people. Third, let's see how God chose to hate Esau. What does hate mean in verse 3? God said it. What does he mean? Well, love and hate are Hebrew opposites, these Hebrew words. So whatever Jacob got from God, um, Esau got the opposite. God's love for Jacob is an electing covenant love and relationship which transcends human depravity and replaces God's curse with God's covenant blessing. So then it follows that God's hatred of Esau is a fair exclusion from that covenant love relationship accompanied by deserved curses, curses that are entirely consistent with the total depravity of Esau. Now, Let's bring it down to your level. You would be absolutely furious if the government uh, made you, forced you, coerced you to give your inheritance to criminals. You'd be furious. So be very careful not to indict God for choosing to give the inheritance of his love to Jacob while withholding it from Esau, who rejected God. It is God's divine right to give and to withhold love you got to be intellectually honest about that. Why is it okay for you and not God who's so far above us? Be very careful with your thinking. Please listen carefully to this line. I think it's true and I worked hard on it. All right. (laughs) God's hatred of Esau was as much a glorious display of God's good justice as God's love for Jacob was a glorious display of God's good grace. God's love and hatred are not mutually exclusive. God's love and hate are both entirely consistent with the the fullness of his holiness and who he is. And my question is, does this challenge your conception of God? Do you think of God differently than what the Bible represents him? Well, you might. You might. You you may never have heard what I'm saying this morning. It may completely be like, what in the world is he saying? Have you considered God's hate in Scripture? Have you paid attention that it's there? Does God really hate like Malachi 1.3 says? Consider this, Psalm 5.5, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11 verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. These verses and others in Scripture offend secular 
and mainstream, liberal, and apathetic Christians who want a comfortable God who submits to cultural trends. These are the same people who redefine the love of God according to what they want it to be, namely a diluted, inclusive, tolerant, relativistic, universalistic, accepting of all people who do whatever they want kind of love, which certainly no longer resembles God's actual love at all. Yes, God hates people. God excludes people people. God disregards people. And he's good to do it. Now, that may offend postmodern sensibilities. I understand that. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) Especially when it seems like all that we have heard is That God loves everybody the way they are, has a wonderful plan for them, and is ultimately for them. God's not against you. God's not against anybody. That's what we have heard over and over again. Read your Bible. No matter what kind of person they are, it seems like everybody just gets this general universal love of God. But that doesn't work with Malachi 1. That doesn't work with Romans 9. That doesn't work with the worldwide flood. That doesn't work with James 4, 6, which says God opposes the proud. It doesn't work with 1 Corinthians 3, 17, which says if anyone destroys God's temple, that's you and me, church, God will destroy him. God is against a lot of people. Do you know that about God? What does it mean? What do we do with a verse that says that God hated Esau? What what do you do with that? Well, Dr. Ian Duguid equates hate with this, quote, the behavior that flows from a rejection of relationship. Rejection of relationship. I think that's right. Duguid said this, the Lord's hatred for Esau is thus a sovereign rejection of him and his offspring from the undeserved privilege of relationship with the Lord for which Jacob has been chosen. Dr. Richards, uh, Richard Taylor and Ray Clendenin say it like this, the point is not that God loved Jacob more than Esau, but that he loved him rather than Esau. Neither Jacob nor Esau deserved to be loved by God. They did not deserve that. So then the fact that God chose to love one of them is infinitely off the charts, gloriously compassionate and loving. And we cannot be very careful with this. We cannot say that God simply loved Esau less than Jacob, though the word hate Uh, can be used in that way in some context. Here's here's why. That would make the love of God seem capricious. Well, some are loved more than others. Plus, it wouldn't explain why God didn't make the covenant with Esau, nor why God furiously opposed Esau and Edom in verses 2 through 5. Nor would it explain God's judgment of Edom in Jeremiah 49, Ezekiel 25, Amos 1, and the entire prophecy of Obadiah. Read Obadiah. It's against Edom. Now, inevitably, some of you are, are, are deeply struggling with this. You may have been from last week. And I understand that. I understand that. And if I had a guess, my guess is that your problem 
with listening to some of this is not the fact that Jacob was loved by God. That probably causes you very little loss of sleep at night. If anything gets at your crawl, it's probably the fact that God did not love Esau. Just a guess, but I think it's true. Be very careful lest you find yourself accusing God of unfairness. Be careful lest you find yourself telling God whom he must love and whom he must save. Allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. Don't pull things out of context. Use other things in Scripture to interpret this. So we've got to go to Romans 9 because Paul quoted Malachi 1, 2, and 3 in Romans 9. So if we want to understand what Malachi is saying, we've got to go to Paul to see how he is talking about this. And I, I so wish we had time to unpack Romans 9. We can't. There is just, it, there's too much in there. We could spend three years on Romans 9 alone. That's probably not an overstatement. So um, listen carefully to just verses 11 through 13. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I certainly have some questions. Why was Sarah told the older will serve the younger? Why did God say, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated? Well, the answer is plain in Romans 9, if you read it fairly. First, notice what the answer is not. This is not the answer, and Paul clarifies this in these verses. It isn't because Jacob and Esau did anything good or bad. That wasn't it. It isn't because of human works at all. That's not it. Here's the answer that Paul gave. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. First, God had a purpose. He had a holy and right and good purpose, a plan that he was carrying out in the world. Romans 8.28, right? Don't you want that verse to be true? God has a purpose. He has to be sovereign for Romans 8.28 to be helpful to you and me. Ephesians 1, verse 11, Ephesians 3, verse 11, 1 Timothy 1, verse 9, God has a purpose, and he sovereignly works everything according to the counsel of his will. Second, election is God's purpose. The Greek noun ekloge, or election, appears seven times in the New Testament and only ever refers to God's choice of people. We may hear that and think, oh. That is so unfair. Well, guess what? Paul is one step ahead of you and me. Because listen to what he writes in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Touche, Paul. You knew where we were going. And he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Period. Is God unfair? No way. 
Not in a million years is he unfair. Is God's election based on human will? Should we say human free will? Should we say humans who work really hard to be accepted by God? And the answer is no way, not in a million years. Election is based on God's free choice to show mercy. Please study Romans 9. I, I can't make you do it, but it, it's really helpful. You have to study it fairly. It can help you make sense of Malachi 1, 2 through 5. God is never unfair. Don't accuse him of being unfair. And I love what Tim Keller wrote. He, he said this, quote, If we can conceive of a more merciful system of salvation than God has, we must not see it rightly. For God is more merciful than we can ever imagine. Indeed, when we finally see the whole plan and answer, we will not be able to find fault with it. End of quote. Yes, Tim. There's so many Tims in my life. I love them. I love Tims. Tims are great. We should marvel at the mercy of God instead of indicting him with our grossly limited human perspective. Is it our right to critique God? Do you want to be in that position to critique what God has revealed to you? I don't. I don't. But doesn't God love everyone? Romans 3.16, pastor. Come on. Tell the whole truth. And I'll say the complexity of these matters demands that we think carefully, that we think biblically, that we see the whole scope of of Scripture. So let me answer yes. There is a sense in which God loves everyone, even Esau. Now test this. Hadn't God been kind to Esau to protect him and to make him into a great nation with many blessings? Uh, Didn't Jesus repetitively appeal to the Pharisees who hated him? Doesn't God give atheists life and freedom to hate him while at the same time giving them abundant food, abundant money, abundant health, abundant pleasure. You see, Richard Dawkins hates God. He is a stark atheist. He would wipe Christianity out in a moment if he could. And yet God has very kindly made him a very rich man through best-selling books written to dishonor God. That is kindness. That is love that you and I don't have. Okay, you don't love like that, and neither do I. Not through the Holy Spirit. He can help us to love. Okay, but you get my point. Psalm 145, verse 9 and verse 13 say this. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made and kind in all his works. Are you going to believe that? Write these references down quickly. It'll help you. If you want to study them later, I've got to go through, so listen again if you miss them. Ezekiel 18, verses 23 and 31. Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Matthew 5, verse 45. Acts 14, verse 17. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4. And 2 Peter 3, verse 9. Study those and see that, yes, God loves everyone to a certain extent. But if by everyone it is meant, does God love everyone the same way, with the same covenantal and salvific love, then God himself gives the answer of no, he does not. God loved Jacob, not Esau. God loved Israel, not Edom. God loves his elect, not his enemies. 
Now, I love a lot of women, but I do not love them as I love my dear wife, Christina. I give Christina a unique, specific, exclusive, covenant love, an oath-bound love, a deeper love that I don't give to anyone else, not even my dear mother. If I spread my love to other women... It ceases to be love, and and as a fallen man, if I gave my covenant love to women other than Christina, you would come after me, and rightly so, you should. We should not forget that God has created marriage as an image of his exclusive oath-bound love of his people, Ephesians 5. We've reviewed the story of Esau and Jacob, saw God's love for Jacob, saw God's hate of Esau. Now let's quickly unpack the rest of the verses. Fourth, let's see how God's judgment on Edom affirmed God's love for Israel. Seems like a, like a stretch, God. What are you doing here? Uh, first, a really quick backstory that I think will help. Esau became the nation of Edom. Edom hated and opposed Israel throughout Scripture. Just a real pain in the side was Esau and Edom. Um, in the 6th century, when Babylon conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, Edom helped Babylon. Edom helped capture Israelites to turn them over to Babylon. Then some moved into Judean villages. (laughs) So Edom was an accomplice in the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of Israel from Judah to Babylon. Israel remembered that. They did not forget. And at a time of great hatred for Edom, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Obadiah all prophesied the eventual destruction of Edom, which gave hope to Israel. God said in Ezekiel these harsh words against Edom, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah, I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. I will stretch out my hand against you. I will lay your cities waste. I will make you a perpetual desolation and your cities shall not be inhabited. Late in the 6th century, Edom was conquered and driven out of their homeland. By the time of Malachi, Edom's territory was bleak and was barren. Now look at verse 3 again. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. God's destruction of Edom reminded Israel of God's covenant love and faithfulness to them. Their enemies were defeated. They were conquered and would never be restored. Never. Perpetual destruction. Interestingly, this is very interesting, years before Malachi, God spoke against Judah through Jeremiah. It sounds familiar. This is what he said. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a layer of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitants. Sounds like verse 3, doesn't it? Except God lovingly brought Judah back to their homeland and they rebuilt. God honored his promise. Verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry, what does it say? Forever. 
God lovingly restored Israel, he would always love Israel. And God would tear Edom down and would always be angry with Edom. Now, that may sound extreme for us, but it was gloriously loving to Israel. They would have heard that and rejoiced. The perpetual hatred of Esau and Edom was the justification God gave to Israel to remind them of his unending covenant love for them. Can you see that in the text? Am I doing some gymnastics with God's reasoning here? Or am I saying what's there? That's not how I tell my kids I love them. But God is not like me, and God is not like you. He is infinitely better than you and me. He does things differently. The utter destruction of Edom reminded rebellious Israel, rebellious Israel, wasn't in a good spot spiritually of two things. One, God's terrifying justice if they remained in their sins. God will not tolerate you, Israel, if you rebel from the covenant. And it reminded them of God's extravagant and enduring love for them if they would return to him. What a way for God to lovingly plead to Israel, return to me, return to me, return to me. Then God tells Israel in verse 5, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Edom was ruined. Edom was flattened by God. Yet there were probably a few Edomites around near the region of Judah. Perhaps Israel was fearful of Edom's upsurge and then maybe they would build up power again and be such a thorn in the side once again to Israel. But God promised to tear them down. They try, they're done. I will decimate them. Israel would see the greatness of God inside of the perpetual destruction of Edom. Do you see that in the text? Is it not wonderful that God will destroy evil? Or do you want him to have another plan for evil somehow, to let it go maybe? Is he not good to destroy the wicked? The phrase, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel, is not referring to God's greatness to save people from all the nations. That's not what he's saying. Other places of Scripture teach that. That's true. But that's not what this means. Verse 5 says this. Your own eyes shall see this. What does this refer to? This refers back to God tearing down Edom in righteous indignation. That's verses 3 and 4. Destruction is what unveils the greatness of God for Israel to see once again. It is both the preservation of Israel, the eternal love of Israel, and the destruction of Edom, the perpetual hatred of Edom that restore praise and worship inside of Israel. Uh, They will see and savor the supremacy of God in all the earth. He is a God in Israel, and he is a God beyond Israel. He is the universal Lord. God used election and his universal lordship to call Israel back to himself. Return to me. Return to me. Let me show you something profound. I need to wrap up. I know this is long. I knew I was going to be in trouble. Let me me show you from Galatians 3, 16 and 7 something that you, you have to get this. Please get this. This is what Paul says. I'm going to quote and not add any things until I said, end quote. Here we go. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, 
referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. End of quote. Oh, the implications of those two verses. By loving Israel and by loving us, God is honoring a covenant that he made with his son, Jesus Christ. An amazing covenant of grace. Abraham's covenant was about Jesus. It pointed to Jesus, the Son of God. God kept the covenant. And unlike Jacob, and unlike Israel, and unlike us, Jesus kept the covenant perfectly. He did it all for you. He did it all for me. He did it all for believing Israel. Jesus kept the covenant. The good news of election is that God sovereignly takes sinners and by grace through faith in Christ puts them inside the covenant, inside his love. God unites them to Christ so they can enjoy his electing covenant love. Oh, that we would understand this and not fight this. And yet at the same time, it is true that everyone who refuses to trust Christ is outside of Christ, the chosen one of God, is outside the covenant of grace, and therefore is hated by God. Rejected by God under the holy wrath of God and facing the coming destruction of God. That's your friends. That's your family members. That's people we know who are hated by God. Tell them they're loved until you tell them to come to Christ so they can be loved by the Father. You warn them of what's coming. Don't belittle God in his glory and his glorious love because when you belittle his justice, you at the same time belittle his love. Can we please tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm trying to be honest. I'm trying for you to see the weight of these matters. We're not playing church. Please. In a very tender moment, would you please hear this? It is saving faith in Christ alone which confirms for you and me that we have been chosen. Cling to Christ. Cling to the cross. And know yourself loved by God. Know yourself chosen. It is the Holy Spirit who confirms from within us that we are chosen children of God. The Holy Spirit says, from within you, Abba, Father, He is mine. I belong to Him. He is my good Father. And you know, as soon as we talk about these things, well, how do you know who's elect and who's not? Who should we share the gospel with? And who? We don't know who the elect are, except if we see faith in, you know, Christina, she's elect. I see it in her faith. Tim, you're elect. I see it in your faith. But So we don't know if that hardened heart just hates Jesus, won't bow the knee to Jesus. We don't know if they're elect. They could use, God could use you to convert them, go after them with tenacity in the gospel. We don't know who the elect are, and nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Nobody is just that we would know that is just damned and beyond, let's just give up on them. They'll never come around. Look how angry they are about God. 
Don't do that. You don't know. Look at Paul. Paul was terrible. Jesus. We don't know who will eventually believe. No one is lost until they die without Jesus. Then they're lost. How does all this help you? (laughs) You're probably like, this is weird. (laughs) He's half crying. I don't know what to make of all this. I don't either. Please consider a few thoughts. How do you know that when you wake up tomorrow, you'll still be saved? If it's up to you, aren't you a little nervous? You're prone to wander. What on earth are you going to do to keep yourself saved? (laughs) If it's up to you, you are in big, big trouble. You see, but you can sleep well and wake up confident the next morning if election is true. You need election to be true. Or you are in a very precarious position. If your answer centers on, I'll wake up saved tomorrow because of something you do or something you have done or how good you have been, your assurance is quite volatile. You won't have much assurance because you're prone to wander from God. Please hear this. Election ensures you that because of your union with Christ, God is bound by an oath, his oath to love you forever. Election guarantees that your relationship with God is secure in Christ. What's going to touch you? What's going to rob you of what is yours in Christ? Nothing. If you are in Christ, God cannot reject you because he has made a covenant with Christ. Election allows you to be confident in the enduring love of God for you even when you wander from your father because when you wander by his gracious fatherly love, he's going to bring you back. People don't leave Christ, die in their sin, and then, oh, well, they professed. I think he was. No, they'll come back if God brings them back and they're truly the elect. Election means you can wake up tomorrow. Please don't miss this. You can wake up tomorrow confident that God loves you. We are not loved by God because of how great we are, and we are not rejected by God because of how great Christ is. Election does a lot of wonderful things. I wish we could do it. We are such a late crowd. This will be 50 minutes online. But anyway, I'm rolling, folks. Election does a lot of wonderful things for those who trust in Christ. I wish we could unpack all of them. There are incalculable blessings in election, and I encourage you to seek out those blessings on your own, research scripture to see what God has said about this. But for now, may election reveal to you how undeserving you are of the love of God, but yet how extravagantly loved you are by God because God chose to love you in Christ. Don't skeptically obsess over why God hasn't chosen some. But wonder, marvel, obsess at the fact that God has chosen you and then grow happier in God that he has. Don't miss what God put election in here to tell you. The sovereignty of God in election is the gateway to the extravagant love of God. Follow the path of election and find yourself more loved by God than you have ever conceived. Father, you are loving and you are kind, but at the same time you are just and furious at evil. 
true story, I am wicked in my heart. The more I mature in Christ God, the more I see how terrible of a person I am. But at the same time, I see how radically loved I am by God. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters. I pray that they don't fight election. But I pray that they also don't hear, in at least my tone, that they can't ask good questions. Because we should ask questions. And then we should go to scripture to to test and to answer and to listen humbly. So I pray that my brothers and sisters who are really wrestling with this, who don't see why this is good, who who might have heard this for the first time, that that they would be very honest about that and ask good questions. Maybe they send me emails. Maybe they send the elders emails or talk to us face-to-face to to further flesh this out and and ask good questions. That was my process for many years of just just seeking to understand, and I'm still seeking to understand. So God, may, may we be humble to receive your message for us and receive the love that you have for us in election The scripture says, in love, you predestined us. In love, in love. If we we say you're a tyrant, God, how could you not do? Oh, we're not not there yet. We haven't gotten what the real meaning of election is. It's love. Help us to see that, God. Make us humble. Make us crave for more of your word. We love you. Thank you, Father. For Christ's fame, amen. Amen.